Unleashed. You can see it on the screen. Unleashed. I want to take a look over the next few weeks at some highlights from the book of Acts. Just kind of continuing this story from the resurrection. What happened next? What, what, just what took place? And so that's kind of where we're going with this idea of being unleashed. We are in a war. We know that. We know the forces of God and the forces of evil, the forces of Satan, are doing battle in an unseen realm. And yet we see the evidence of that in the world in which we live, particularly in our culture. We are in a culture war. The culture war between the church and the world is at an all-time high. We see it in Hollywood and in the entertainment industry. It's visible in politics, in newspapers and magazines, sometimes even in the church itself. And as Christians, we find ourselves in the midst of a truly dark place where morals are mocked and values are vilified and where righteousness is ridiculed. Through the years, in over 40 years of ministry, my view of ministry in the church has been simply to preach the gospel, serve the kingdom of God, lift up Jesus, and see the world come to Him. But in the process of building the church and striving to be a light in the community, I realize that for the most part, we're conducting ministry primarily inside our four walls. And sure, we venture out from time to time for service projects, but through the years as I've continued to preach and minister in a typical fashion, man, the world has drastically changed. I mean, particularly for this service, our traditional service, how much has things changed since you were a child? Wow, yeah. The world has drastically changed. And the tide has turned, and, I, and I, through the years, I, I began to feel more and more every day as though I was being deluged by this cultural tsunami, as though we, the church, were losing the battle of the church influencing the world for Christ versus the world influencing the church. I, would, I never would have believed Never would have crossed my mind when I first started ministering that the day would ever come that we'd be having a discussion, let alone a debate about how marriage should be defined. I never would have thought of that. Never in my wildest dreams did I think we'd be fighting to defend and uphold the historical and biblical definition of marriage. And whenever a preacher would be bold enough to speak up and share what the Bible says on some of the hot-button issues of the day, a lot of times they would be attacked from those outside the church as well as those inside the church, from believers in Jesus and non-believers alike, arguing that the church should not be engaged in the culture wars, that the church should not be engaged in the social wars like same-sex marriage, abortion, things like that. But you tell me, what will happen if the church doesn't get involved and speak up? What's going to happen? I mean, 
Will things get better? And will our culture in our country just heal itself? No. Or will our country continue to drift to a place beyond repair? I'm reminded of a stirring passage in Ezekiel that appears right after God expresses his indignation towards the wickedness and the injustice and the oppression that had become so prevalent in the land of Israel during Ezekiel's time. In Ezekiel 22, verse 30, God says, I looked for someone among them that would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Does that passage make you shudder a little bit? Does it burden your heart for our nation? I hope so. It should. I think it's a sobering reminder to Christians everywhere of the dire consequences that will result if we don't stand in the gap on behalf of our land, on behalf of our God. Folks, the church and the world are in direct conflict with one another. It's a spiritual war that's being fought. We know that because Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes on to tell us what our response should be to such a battle because he goes on to say in verse 13 and following, Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Our culture doesn't want to hear the truth anymore. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So is there biblical precedent for Christians to wade into the culture wars and for preachers to engage in these issues in their preaching and priorities? I'm waiting for your answer. Yes, absolutely yes, there's biblical precedent. We've been discussing the impact of the resurrection of of Christ the past couple of weeks. And the book of Acts begins with Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. He gives them a strategy to go win the world. And before ascending back into heaven, Jesus promised his apostles that if they waited prayerfully and patiently in Jerusalem that God would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 in a supernatural way that took place on the day of Pentecost, that miraculous moment in which God imparted His Spirit to the early Christians with mighty signs and wonders, filling every believer, those faithful believers, and it left onlookers just utterly amazed. But what was so special about this unleashing of the Spirit of God? 
It wasn't simply a spectacle of speaking in tongues, not just the sound of the mighty rushing wind, not just the appearance of the flames of fire above their heads, but earlier in Luke 24 and verse 45, Jesus had actually explained to his followers that they would be clothed with power from on high. Then in Acts 1 verse 8, he expounded further. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And here's his strategy for them to win the world. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see that the main benefit of that gift to the Holy Spirit was to enable their witness to glorify God through this supernatural power of the Holy Spirit given so the church could advance and go on the, the offensive and, and, and take the battle out there. And when he says you will be clothed with power, you've heard this before, but it's the Greek word dunamis that we get our English word dynamite from. God was giving them dynamite power. And the scripture tells us God has placed that power within each and every follower of Jesus, no matter our position, our size, our economic status, our race, our gender, our age. Doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, you have that gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, while Acts chapter 2 details how God's Spirit was unleashed upon the church, the rest of the entire book of Acts shows how God unleashed the church upon the world. And in almost every chapter, we see that dynamite power demonstrated in the first century Christians in a remarkable fashion, both individually and corporately. And they impacted the culture around them. They were not afraid to engage in the culture wars of their time. Let me give you a few examples of that dynamite power and what it did. In Acts chapter 3, a beggar was healed, even though he'd been disabled since birth, by that dynamite power. That power of the Spirit caused the ordinary unschooled disciples to preach with a courage that astounded and befuddled those in authority in Acts chapter 4. The power of the Spirit caused countless people to be healed and to become believers, all as a result of the signs and wonders performed by the apostles in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen witnessed with boldness and later died willingly at the hands of his persecutors for his faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8, that power brought an Ethiopian official to believe the gospel to be baptized. In Acts chapter 9, a vehement persecutor of the church suddenly became a believer. He was once called Saul of Tarsus. Now we know him as the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 12, Peter was miraculously released from prison. And in Acts chapter 16, a jailer from Philippi that had been overseeing Paul and Silas in prison accepted the gift of salvation after a violent earthquake, all brought about by this dynamite power that God had brought upon them. And so the early church became this mighty, energetic, conspicuous, eye-opening movement. With great influence and potency, the early church confronted the world. They, they, they bucked the status quo. They stood against that ever-changing tide of culture. They weren't afraid 
to be engaged in that war. The traditions of the religious and political leaders were threatened, and so they persecuted followers of Jesus. They arrested them, imprisoned them, flogged them, ordered them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And by the time you get to Acts 17 and verse 6, the church in the first century was actually accused of turning the whole world upside down. That's what happened when God unleashed the church upon the world in the first century. Can you imagine such a thing? That the church would turn the world upside down? It was this power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that transformed a team of ragtag, uneducated Galileans into a lean, mean fighting machine. A group of followers who took the world by storm. Now, folks, when I stop now today and I look at the example set by those courageous New Testament heroes, the change they inspired throughout the world of that time, and I stand back and look at the modern-day church and try to compare the two, I come to a troubling conclusion that the church in our country barely reflects the church in the book of Acts. Now before you tune me out, let, let me explain a little bit. There are many churches today that neglect, misunderstand, or fail to seize the dynamite power from the Holy Spirit that is supernaturally available to us as Christians. There are more than 330 million people living in America today, and the vast majority of them do not know Jesus Christ. When you look at the ongoing proliferation of the use of pornography, a $17 billion industry today, when you look at the escalating divorce rate over the past several decades, when you look at the fact that way over 60 million abortions have occurred in the United States since Roe v. Wade in 1973. You look at the growing acceptance and approval of same-sex marriage. You look at the number of people that are unsaved, unchurched, and without a relationship with Jesus. You look at the number of churches that have become stagnant and dormant in their growth and effectiveness, and the number of churches that have just simply closed their doors. I think it becomes overwhelmingly obvious that we still have a very long way to go in order to accurately mirror the church of the New Testament. What do you think? Now there could be a number of reasons why the church seems to be losing the culture war. It could be sin. I pray it's not sin within the church. Could be. But when I mention sin, I just wonder sometimes if that we as a nation have drifted so far away from God that he has simply removed his hand of blessing upon us. Maybe it's financial difficulty that has hampered our evangelistic endeavors because money has become the God of so many and even those within the church oftentimes don't bring the whole tithe into God's house. Or maybe it's division. A house divided against itself can't stand. 
or maybe the inability to overcome opposition or discouragement or a fear of allowing God's Spirit to lead because it might take us out of our comfort zones, hindering the flowing power and joy that could amaze those around us. Maybe it's biblical illiteracy. Maybe God's people just don't know the Word anymore and the power of the Word. But for whatever reason, we often find ourselves in a defensive posture as Christians. And if this were a football game, our backs would be against the goal line with our opponent positioned to score the winning touchdown. Well, the church needs to intercept the ball and get back on offense and be aggressive and regain momentum. We've got to begin to advance and impact every segment of society in order to win that cultural battle. And as believers, we're ultimately going to have victory because God is on our side. But listen, folks, he's much more than on our side or even by our side. He's actually inside because his spirit dwells within us. And because of this truth, the church is a Holy Spirit-enabled force to be reckoned with And we've got all the necessary tools to succeed if we'll just do it. So may we as Christians open our hearts fully to the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would move from status quo to spirit flow. And pray that the Spirit will empower us like never before. But be forewarned. With that power, you will undoubtedly cause quite a commotion wherever you go. Just like Christ and his first century followers did. Whenever Jesus and and his disciples rolled into town with, with such unstoppable momentum, the political and religious systems were confronted by the power of God being displayed in the midst of ordinary people. And so those in authority did the only thing they could do for fear of losing their standing in the community. They turned against the early disciples by threatening them, imprisoning them, flogging them, persecuting them. They would do anything to silence this group that was referred to as the way, attempting to stifle their voice and influence so that they themselves could maintain control and power over the people. Do we ever see that happen today? Multiple threats and emphatic demands not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus were an attempt to scare Christians into being silent, and oftentimes those fear tactics worked, and sometimes they still work today. We need to remember what Jesus actually preached himself. Matthew 4, 17, from that time on Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Folks, Jesus preached repentance. Repentance from what? Well, sin, obviously. And many of us share the love of Christ. His awesome mercy and grace toward each of us. But I think a lot of times in our desire not to offend people, sometimes we omit the truth that Jesus preached repentance from sins. Whenever we preach against any kind of sin, it will result in a certain rejection from the world. Because people desire to remain in their sin. And they will therefore attempt to discredit, dissuade, and derail the messenger of truth. And as Christians, we must accept that this is inevitable. Jesus told us over 2,000 years ago, I've told you these things 
so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Amen to that. But take heart. I've overcome the world. So we've got to stay faithful to our duty to preach like Jesus preached by telling others about the necessity of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. And we must expect opposition and troubles and rejection as a result of sharing our faith. And we've got to face these trials with courage. When Jesus sent out the 12 disciples on his behalf in Matthew chapter 10, he challenged them, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you've received, freely give. But then he issued this stern warning, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. They're going to witness to who? Governors and kings and Gentiles. Does governors and kings seem a little bit political to you? Are we supposed to witness and be involved with political people? And with, We'll just leave it there. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. And Jesus didn't use words like might or if in that passage, but will and when. It's inescapable that persecution is promised to those that faithfully proclaim the message. And the old rugged cross at Calvary upon which our Savior was crucified is the ultimate example of what happens when we stand for the truth and turn the world upside down in the name of Christ's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And when we gaze at that cross, it should serve not only as a reminder of God's great love and sacrifice for us, but also as an assurance that if we're truly living and preaching as Jesus did, that many of us will face fierce persecution, possibly even death, for the sake of the gospel. But the early church, when God unleashed the church upon the world, they embraced with complete abandon those examples from Jesus' life and teaching. They preached the fullness of the gospel, they stood courageously before the world regardless of violating politically correct language or fearing an onslaught of persecution. Are we doing that? Too many Christians in our country often think that there's, there's just nothing they can do to stop the cultural landslide that's happening before their eyes. So they just sit inside the church week after week and do nothing, just hoping that the problems of this world will take care of themselves. But we're called to get outside the four walls of the building. We're called to preach the gospel with boldness to all generations, with dynamite power from on high, and not fear the consequences, but simply maintain a calm assurance that Jesus will always be with us. And yes, we stand before a tough opponent, but we need to remember that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Our culture is confused about what is right and wrong. And the church is confused about whether it's our job to speak out. But if you take a look at the book of Acts, 
you will see clearly instruction from the Word of God that since the Holy Spirit has been released upon the church, that the church has now been unleashed upon the world to influence, preach boldly, and speak the truth in love. And empowered with the power of the Holy Spirit, equipped with that power, we are to go and to be salt in all arenas of life, to season the culture and transform lives and glorify God until Christ comes again. And it's my prayer and hope that God will energize the church of today and transform it into what He truly envisions it to be. Not an entity that walks in confusion and weakness, but a powerful force strengthened by the Holy Spirit, much like our brothers and sisters in the first century were. And may we together stand when others are falling. May we finish the race. May we complete the task. And may we remain focused on calling the church to turn the world upside down. And in the weeks to come, we're going to take a look at how that first century church was unleashed upon the world and I pray we'll learn lessons that we can put into effect ourselves, and be much more like the church then than the church of now. I'm done preaching. Let's pray and then we're going to sing a hymn of decision. Father, we come to you right now praying that we might once again have a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, of that dynamite power that will enable us to be the church that you've called us to be, what you intended from the beginning, to have your mighty power unleashed through us upon the world in bringing people to a knowledge of the gospel of your Son. Father, may we be unafraid to allow that to happen. And even if it takes us, it takes us outside of these four walls and outside of our comfort zones, help us to understand, Father, it's worth it and that you'll be with us. And when we face the opposition, when we are persecuted, oppressed, told to shut up, Help us to answer as your early disciples that we must obey God rather than man. Fill us, Father. Help us to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a decision that you would like to make public for Jesus today, you can meet me down front as we stand and sing twice through the chorus of Into My Heart. Let's stand.